I want to just talk a little today. Um, I want to continue the message from before, and I want to just review a little bit before Wes shared. But I want to say this. I think Wesley's message was so powerful, so um, it was simple, and people can, can miss the beauty and the word of the Lord, the in-season moment of the word because of that. And so I want to encourage you all to listen to that. It's really in line with everything God's been speaking to us. Centrality of Christ, not in some ethereal, religious way, but in a real way where it's applied to our daily life. And we all need growth in the Lordship of Christ. We all need growth in inviting him in. It's kind of what I want to talk a little bit about today. And last time I spoke, we talked... It was on Christmas, and it was about the gift of light. And life group leaders have been asking for some kind of summary of what exactly was the main point of this, right? Well, if you summarize my whole message last week, it would be last time it was in John 3. And it said, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And we define darkness as the result of no interaction from outside humanity. That's darkness. Darkness, no interaction from outside humanity. No transcendent God coming down and being involved with men. It's just human beings left with their own ideas, solutions, mind, um, wisdom, resources, you know, and even evil, how many of you have met people who say, well, I just leave the devil alone, you know, and I think he'll leave me alone. I've heard it from so many people. And it's this humanistic idea that if we just mind our own business and focus on ourselves, God, the devil, they'll leave us alone. We're not like after anything, so they'll leave us alone. We won't cause problems. I know Christians who have said that. Well, I'm just not going to get too aggressive with God here. I don't want to, you know, take such a side that like it's, it makes the enemy mad because that scares me. He'll come after me. This kind of mentality. Well, when, if I were to title it, I'd say renouncing humanism is the title today. And, you know, when we look at this problem, I don't want any of you to focus so much on the problem. We lose sight of the real purpose of the message. And that is, we have a problem. It's called humanism. At the very heart and core of all of us, we struggle with this, many of us not even realizing the extent that we live humanistically. And my point isn't to make us feel bad. My point is to try to bring a very compelling and stark challenge to say, we have a problem. Let's invite God in and let him be the solution. We need something beyond our human reality. We need a transcendent God, which means he goes beyond our human like realm and capacity. We need a supernatural transcendent God to jump inside. And we know from the gospel, this was his whole intent, right? He came as a man. He took the form of man fully as God so that he could break the curse of sin and death off mankind. 
And that is more than just us having our sins washed away so we go to heaven. It's about the way we live now as well. And many of us have fallen into, you know, I've shared it many times. How many of you look around and see no difference between a believer and someone without Christ? Well, if that is the case, something is wrong. Like, just think about it. Like, Jesus came as the Son of God, sent by the Father, to disrupt dysfunction and darkness and sin and the curse of sin and death. He came to disrupt that by jumping inside, laying his life down on a cross to take the full penalty of what we should have taken. Because he chose himself, the perfect lamb that should have taken the cup of great reward and inheritance from the Father. He puts that aside, and it says he drinks of the cup of devils that was reserved for us, and took all of that upon himself so that we could have the cup of inheritance of a perfection from God. That's a huge deal. So, if we were to define humanism, this is straight from maybe Wikipedia, I don't know, but an outlook or system of thought attaching prima importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanist beliefs stress one, the potential value and goodness of human beings. How many of you have heard, I'm a good person? Like everybody in the world says that. Um, not everybody, you know, some people know they're most, most people. Two, they emphasize common human needs. So there's this common human need that we all share. Three, they seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. So what you see here is you see a closed system that relies completely on human beings and everything they can muster up to solve every problem, meet every need, relate on a, on a very human level with one another. So in humanism, you can have community. You can have people sharing hearts together and feeling close and understood and heard. You can succeed because people with more than a few brain cells can actually be successful in life. They can use their mind, their God-given faculty of thinking and problem-solving, and they can actually have a successful life financially, materially, We've been created in his image, whether we want that or not. So there's a certain capacity to think and problem solve and be creative, right? So without God, outside of this massive issue of human depravity, where we cannot escape the curse of sin and death on our own, we couldn't live a quote unquote humanly deemed good life. That's why so many people without the Lord are fulfilling the American dream. 
What is that? It's living to your potential, being the best you you can be. <laughs> getting a house, maybe a couple. Getting some vehicles, getting some toys. Being comfortable, having a nice family. See, all of this can be done within the framework of a closed system without God. And I think what we, we need to realize is we need to really realize this. Because we don't understand really the power of humanity and how it can mask us from seeing the reality of heaven breaking in on earth. Like we have settled, folks, for a very human existence. And that is why there is so little power in the church. That is why we have atrophy in our lives. Atrophy is when something stops working. And I'll tell you, when atrophy sets in, many times you have no idea that it's set in because it becomes a new reality. Something doesn't work, we compensate, and then we live like that's normal. And it happens, so you've heard the story about like the frog in boiling water, if it boils, you know, if it, the temperature increases gradually, they don't even know, and they just stay in the water and boil. And it's that same phenomena when change happens in our life so much that we don't even realize that we have atrophy in our hearts. And atrophy, I'm referring to not being able to connect with a supernatural God. We, this humanistic existence can basically become Christian. We can say, this is what Christianity looks like. I serve a God. I read his word. I pray. We have a form of, the scripture speaks to it, right? We have a form of godliness, but deny the power of it. What is that saying? It's, it's, it's saying we, we can all, and even without God, we can have a form of godliness. We can have a, a structure, a framework of being moral, teaching our kids right and wrong, reading the Bible together, praying. Is everyone with me now? You, you kind of catch this picture I'm painting that we can have Christianity, quote unquote, it's not it's not the real Christianity, but it's a form of it, and it looks like that, but we don't have the power of God. That's the transcendent God, the creator, who jumps into the realm and is invited into our hearts and our lives, and he does what he does, which is push out darkness, release light, and transform human beings toward more of their created intention and design. I want you to see this because I would venture to say that a, that a lot of people in church live in a humanistic bubble and they have come up with their own form of Christianity. But unfortunately, it's void of the living God who is alive and is the one that breaks the power of sin and death. He's the one that like expresses supernatural virtue in our midst and then causes us to stand out and shine unlike people without Christ. 
And you know, as I'm talking, you can ask yourself and it would be a great thing for life group leaders. I'm going to leave life group leaders with two main questions, not questions about let's regurgitate the message. That's not the point of life group discussion. It's not to introduce new material. It's to say in light of what was shared, how does it apply to you and my life? And it causes us to think because in this place of humanism, it's very hard for people to apply a supernatural reality to our lives. And that's what we've been told by Jesus. Pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because that's the whole point of, of this idea of shattering humanism. We need power to come into a very dark reality. Dark, remember, isn't evil. Dark just hides. Dark covers. Dark keeps us from having to deal with things. Darkness keeps other people from getting in our business because they can't see our business. Darkness allows us to do what we want because we don't, no one's going to point the finger. God sees through darkness, but now we figure, oh, you know, we're covered, we're dark, everything's dark. And we think, well, we, we actually don't believe in reality that God is a living being alive and sees and lives and engages with humanity because we've blocked him off and we become our own realm, a closed structure. And we don't even realize the extent of this in, our, in the way we live. And that's why I brought up last week, you know, I, last time I spoke, I mean, you know, I spoke to some practical things like, you know, and if you remember the story, Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel and Jesus said, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things like what it is to be born again. Cause Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, a specialist in theology literally said, how is that? Can you go back inside the mother and be born again as a grown man? This was a real teacher asking these ridiculous questions. If someone said that today, we'd say, yeah, he has a few things loose up there. Like anyone knows that's not possible. And I'd rather not discuss that. But then Jesus goes on further and says, if I, if you, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And you know, the most susceptible to humanism is those who are strong in empirical thinking and reasoning. It's those of us who are more cranial and we're, we love to process thought and intellect, right? Those of you who are like that are most susceptible to humanism. So, you know, just in your own life, ask your, you know, as you assess this, this, this idea, okay, this challenge, ask yourself what you're like when you lose control of your life. When you're in a situation that you can't control, what happens to your stress levels? 
Like how seriously do you respond to that state of being out of control? As a believer, you know, and, and sure, you'll say things like, oh, but I'm trusting the Lord. But like you are freaking out at everybody, every waking moment is how can I manage this situation? How can I get out? I haven't come up with plan C yet. I got A and B, but I'm not going to rest until I have a third plan. <sighs> Contingency plan. And then finally, my exit plan. If everything goes terrible, how do I get out of this? Like that kind of mania and you know, psychological thought and consuming your energy, it does reflect that you have a hard time losing control. <laughs> and my only point and challenge to you is, it could be, I'm not saying it is, but it could be that you need a deeper experience with the transcendency of God and growing in the in the reality and the confidence that God, who is supernatural, who is above your situations, who created you, who numbered the hairs on your head, who has your whole plan laid out with ultimate exponential contingencies based on your behavior, and even knows in the very end what's going to all happen. Whew. That you can trust him in a real way, to the point where when something, you find yourself in a situation that's out of control, it's manifest by the lack of stress. This is where the rubber meets the road because we're not talking about ethereal theological stuff. We're talking about the reality of truth applied to our life. And that truth is a real living God that actually has created us and is powerful enough and has a nature and desire to lovingly engage with our lives and help us grow and be developed. Like this is so simple, yet I think it's profound and complex because I don't think we've really entertained this stuff. There's all kinds of other things, you know, in this that we could, we could hit on in this little review here. But how about like fear, um, disruption of comfort, you know, like, like the annoyance of having to obey a God who is, is beyond you. So it's not just you and your, like my concoction of this God, I feel this concocted God is saying like, and then you're like, you're using scripture to rationalize why you don't have to be inconvenienced and obey him. Like we're talking about a real God who says, excuse me, I'd like you to do this, son. Oh, Lord, that is going to be rough. That's going to be difficult. Okay. Yes, sir. I love you with all my heart. I want to just be a living sacrifice. Like that is rare. That's rare, you know, or, you know, just control. Like I had plans. I have plans. I don't like my plans being messed up. All these things I'm talking about are all indications of like, you can assess yourself and just say, Holy Spirit help. Because we 
The Bible says that we don't even know our own hearts because we're so easily deceived with our trying to justify and self-preservation, not just our lives, but our plans, what we want. Does everyone kind of, do you feel this? Like, do you grasp this enough to feel the pain of it? I mean, I, I feel like we have to before we really are like moved to action to actually invite the Lord in and begin to say, God, change me. I'm willing to submit and, and die to my own will. There's that story if You've ever heard it. I don't even know where I heard it from, but there's this dog that was laying on a porch and he happened to lay on a nail that was just up a little bit. And so he's sitting there and he would just groan because this nail would just kind of just, just poke him in the side. But this is, and he wouldn't move. He just laid there because he didn't want to exert enough energy to get up off the nail and move over because it was just painful enough to be aggravating, but not painful enough to cause action. And I feel like most of us are in this place where, well, I mean, do I really need to change? It's not that bad. It's a pain, but it's not that bad. Okay, well, that's kind of my review of last week. Historians say humanism originated in Italy in the late 1300s after the bubonic plague killed anywhere from 25 to 200 million through Eurasia and North Africa. Think about that. Conservative estimates, 20 to 50 million people, 75 to 200, depending on what internet source you look at. Still, that's a lot of people. That was... 40% to 60% of Europe's population. That's one in every two people disappearing off planet Earth in your town. So men, for whatever reason, turned toward themselves. But whatever historians say, I think it started much earlier. I want to look at Genesis 3. Because from the very beginning, from the fall of men, men chose their own way. And that's what humanism is. It's men choosing their own way to do their own thing within their own closed structure. I call it darkness. It's what John and John 1 and 3 call it. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Now listen to how perfectly the woman quotes the word of God. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but not from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden. God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. Now, 
This woman just declared the word of God, knew the truth. And then the serpent, what does he do? He contradicts truth, and that's called a lie. And he says, no, you certainly will not die. The woman starts thinking about it, and the serpent goes on further to say, for God knows. Now, here we go, an interpretation of the lie. So it's a lie, and then it's an expansion of that, and here's where the woman is deceived because she chooses to believe that rather than what God spoke and what she knew clearly that God spoke because she recited it. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Now, as we read later in the story, we realize that is true in part. It is true statement. Because God actually says, oh, they've eaten of the tree. Now they can see good and evil. Their eyes are opened. But what the enemy didn't say was, you can't handle that because you don't have the same capacity and omnipotence as God of knowing all things and being 100% perfect. And so the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And it was a delight to her eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took some of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. So here we have the first example of humanism. They did what was right in their own eyes and then they started making solutions for their mess. They're like, oh, well, we did what was right in our own eyes and guess what? It was true. I can see right and wrong and we're naked. Let's sew coverings. And what's covering? It's darkness. We're going to cloak ourselves with darkness so that we are hidden. Now, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. See, this is this is just a clear outworking of this idea. We do something that's right in our own eyes. We choose to do what we want to do. And what happens? Problems happen. And then we say, oh, well, we'll just come up with a solution. See, no problem being naked. We'll just sew ourselves coverings. Oh, no. What are we going to do about the presence of God? <gasps> we'll hide. Run. We'll hide from him and maybe we'll be hidden in the darkness of hiddenness and not have to deal with God either. Guys, this is like so clear and so tragic. <laughs> then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you, Adam? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. 
So I hid myself. <laughs> it's almost unbelievable. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. Wow, what does is, what is this kind of humanistic thing do? It causes you to blame others for your problems. Oh God, well, I hid because I was afraid and naked, but, and, and you know what? It, like, I didn't want to do it. It was, it's that woman you gave me, God. She gave me this fruit and I ate it. The Lord said to the woman, what is that that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. Here we go. Blame shift two. And I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock, more than any animal of the field on your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will make I will make enemies of you and the woman, your offspring and her descendant, and you shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall deliver children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This isn't uh, like, this isn't what we read about in the Bible where, you know, women are like, wives are supposed to submit to husbands. That's a different word thing here. Rule means like rule in a negative way. Then to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I, God, commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor, you shall eat from it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles shall grow for you. Yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you will return. Now, let's just think about this. What was the consequence of these two first prototypes of, of humans? What was the result of them choosing their own way? Okay, it was death eventually here. We haven't gotten to that yet, but what is it? It's curse, separation, isolation. But what, what happens here? Everything that was meant to be easy by God, designed to become easy, has now become painful and hard. The woman, she creates and works from her body to produce offspring. The man works and creates the ground to produce provision. And in both of these situations, what was meant to be a joy of walking through the garden, I mean, can you imagine what like tilling the ground used to be like before the fall? It would be kind of like plants spring up, grow roots. I'm going to name you Clover. And you're also going to fertilize everything so I don't have to do that. And then just walking around, naming things and looking at the beauty of things growing. No sweat, no hard work, no thorns, no weeds. We'd like weeds. We have a place for you over in that corner. You can prosper and grow. We'll call you the untamed zone. 
<laughs> Everyone's like, that was corny. <laughs> but you did laugh because it was so bad. But the result of, and this is the same thing, the same result we live with today. We choose to do our own thing and we live in the closed system without God. And what was meant to be a blessing and easy and fruitful and productive becomes hard and painful. Then the Lord God's, oh, now the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. See, even when Adam and Eve chose to absolute disobey God, and this isn't like, folks, this isn't like, um, like, like us making a bad decision nowadays. This was, they were in a place of perfection, untarnished. Like, when we make a mistake, we know what it's like because we, we know what it's like to be imperfect. Can you imagine being Adam and Eve before the fall in perfection? This was a fall that was substantial. This altered everything. Everything was perfect and wonderful before. And then the fall, everything falls apart. Their eyes open and their, their mindsets are completely different. And God has loving mercy upon their hearts and says, you know, this is, this is a terrible situation. Let me, let me sew some clothes for you. I can do much better than you did. Like, I can make clothes so amazingly. I'm going to make you the best clothes to cover your nakedness than you can even imagine. Because I love you. And I have mercy on you, even though you've done the worst thing you could possibly do in your life. And then he goes further to say, you know, there's another problem here. And he speaks and confers with the father and the spirit and the son. God talks to himself and says, if we don't take them out of the garden, they're going to live in this flawed state forever. We have to kick them out of the garden as far away and guard the tree of life that they don't live eternally in this state because I have a plan. I am God. I'm going to send my son in years to come and it's going to break the power that they have introduced into humans. And he says, if I can't get them away from the tree of life, they'll stay in this state forever. This is all an incredible display of God's love and his mercy. So he drove the man out and at the east side of the garden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction. So cool. God is so cool. So powerful to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, when we look at the situation, all these qualities, which constitute man's likeness to God, right? Because that's what they did become like God in that they could see good and evil. This free will. Self-dependence, exercise of reason and choice had been developed by the fall. And Adam was now a very different being than what he had been in the days of his simple innocency. 
This is from a commentator, Ellicott. Barnes says, the tree of knowledge of good and evil affected a change, not in the physical constitution of man, but in his mental experience. The moral effect lay rather in the conduct of man in regard to the tree, a thing prohibited. The result of his conduct, whether it be a way of obedience or disobedience to the divine command, was to be the knowledge of good and evil. If man had obeyed, listen to this. This is out of Barnes. He would have come to this knowledge in a legitimate way. God never intended him to just be this innocent man forever. God intended him to grow in knowledge, grow in understanding. And Barnes, what he points out here is that instead of man making the right choice and identifying evil and understanding evil as something that disobeyed and distrusted what God had said and turning away, he personally experienced evil and disobedience so that he knew it from personal experience than personal experience of identification. And this is what God has never done. God knows evil not because he experienced evil. God knows evil because he saw it, witnessed it from the, even from the angels falling from the heavens. And he said, I won't have any part of evil. I am God. I am perfect. I am right. And he judged evil. Men have tried to walk in the same blessing of obedience to God except doing it in their own way. Outside of obedience to God. And this is my questions to you. This is what you need to wrestle with. I'm, I'm saying in a, in a real way. Really ask yourself. Really search through this. First is, what you should talk about in life groups even is in what ways has our society embraced a humanistic worldview and way of life. I mean, that's simple in even something like the American dream, right? It's a good thing in that America has done a lot, has provided people with a place to hope and dream and do things that in other places you can't do. The land of promise, it was, a, it was an incredible place. But somehow it's become a very closed system where we don't need God and we could become a success without him when really we aren't becoming a success as we were designed to be. Remember what I said about humanism, what? It stresses the potential value and goodness of human beings on their own. So kind of overlay this on Genesis 3. Think about Adam and Eve and what they did and, and their whole experience. And then stressing the potential value and goodness of human beings. Two, emphasizing common human needs. Right? And with them it was, we can be like God. We can know good and evil. We can do this. And then seeking solely rational ways of solving human problems. Can you imagine if Adam and Eve, like, if Adam, when he messed up, said, we definitely need to, Daddy. Mommy. Can you imagine if Adam, when he messed up, ended up saying, Eve, we've really messed things up. 
we got to go ask God what to do. Right? But they didn't. They had a night. They'll, oh, let's just sew skins and cover ourselves. So talk about it. Talk about what ways do you think? Think about it. Think about entrepreneurism. Think about all the things in America. Think about medicine. When we're sick, do we really have to trust God? No, we just go to the pharmacy. We go to a doctor and say, hey, human being, I have a real problem. Can you help me? Oh, great. Prescription. I'm all better. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, fellow man. See, we don't even have to deal with that stuff until the doctor says, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I have no solutions for you. Then when we're pressed with the limitations of our human closed structure, we say, oh God, could you help? But most of the time, most of us aren't faced with that. And so we can just live our life without God or a concoction of what we want it to be so it's convenient and respectable within the community. Second question gets really, really personal. But like, you know, we're supposed to, as Bible-believing followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be wanting everyone to see our progress. Well, what does that mean? It means that they need to see where your heart is now, and then they need to witness, because you share your heart openly, they witness a growth from this point to this point. So in genuine Christianity, there is no hiding who you really are. There is no personal faith. Like, oh, my faith is a personal thing. Thank you very much. I'd rather not share. That's not genuine Christianity. That's humanistic form without power. So this is the second thing. In what way do you struggle with doing things your way or the way of society and lose sight of doing it God's way. And we all know deep down inside, we know these things that kind of gnaw at us, eat at us, and we're like, oh, I, I know that this is something that, it's like Adam and Eve, they, they could rationalize a lot, but the one thing they couldn't get rid of is the shame and the guilt. They had to hide from God, they had to cover themselves. That's what came with the knowledge of evil, shame and guilt. And we all have that in our hearts, even though we know Jesus died on the cross for all our sins and he washes away those things. When we know it and we haven't applied it in a real way, we still struggle with those things because he's really a figment of our construction of what we want in our humanistic realm. It's not about like, I have encountered the love of God. I am clean. I am washed free. I have no shame. I have no guilt. I'll shout my past from the housetops. Why? Because it's not me. I've been set free. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's the true test. You're afraid of your past. You are not free. You know, and when we talk about doing our way rather than God's way, think about it in your relationships, in your marriage. Think about it in your relationships with authority figures. Think about it with your children, friends, work colleagues. Think about this concept of your way or God's way in your life decisions. 
Do you even ask God for decisions in your life? Or do you just kind of sort through it on your own and make decisions? I don't know. I'm challenged. I'm challenged if I don't develop a, a habit of saying, oh, this looks good. By the way, Lord, do you have anything to say about this? I need your, I need your wisdom. I need you to speak into this. How many decisions do you make where you don't do that? This is just a challenge to you to invite him in. How about stewarding your finances? Well, I work for this. It's my money. Do we, do we tithe? Do we give back a part of our earnings because we trust the Lord? And we say, like David said, you've given me all things into my hands. So please take this as a token of my trust and the demonstration of my dependence upon you. Giving back to God is simply an expression that we trust him and give back to him and trust him as our true source, not our own strength. How about in goals for your life? Family, career, education, possessions. I was once talking to someone, you know how you make those vision boards for your life? You cut out pictures and you put them on a board of, and every picture represents kind of like, you know, vision for what you want in life. And so person had all these things and I said, hmm, you know, I don't see anything there reflecting God and his plan over your life. They were like, oh, well, what can I do? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just saying these things are all good, but they're all physical stuff. Like, what about God? What about his work in your life? What does that look like in a vision on a vision board? And so the person was troubled, went away. And the next day they were so troubled, they could hardly sleep. And they came up with, they sought the Lord. And they came up with something and amended their vision board. And I thought that was pretty cool. Because they sought the Lord. They looked and said, this is what I believe God spoke. How about your, you know, everything you're doing? How about motivations? What motivates you? Does fear motivate you? Does control motivate you? Does comfort motivate you? Or does doing the will of the Lord motivate you? The one who created you. Lord, I just pray right now that you would Pour your spirit out in this place, Lord. Lord, I know that I, for one, don't want a closed structure where you are closed out. I don't want my own religion. I don't want my own faith. I don't want my own life. I want you to be engaged, active, Lord, I invite you to come, be a part, disrupt status quo, disrupt self-will, self-preference, self-preservation. 
Lord, and even help me to see what I don't see because I know, Lord, that there's so much I don't see, I don't know. Even in the most confidence in you, in your plans, in the word, Lord, it's nothing. We desperately need your intervention. We need you. We need your outpouring. We need you to speak. We need you to love us. Because we can't even love you without you loving us first. We need to know that love. Lord, I pray for every person in here that there'd be a, a seal upon them. Everyone watching at home. A seal upon them that... Lord, you would intervene, that you would reach out, that you would pour out upon our lives and help us see and know your purposes and plans. Open our eyes, Lord God, that we can see. For every place that we've not even known has existed, every supernatural place, every place beyond human capacity, Lord, we pray that you would come and reveal yourself. We thank you for breaking into humanity. Thank you, Father, for sending your son that he came as a man and walked as a man and became a carpenter and then answered the call of God and he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him. And he began to release heaven on earth, release miracles, release supernatural happenings. And then laid his life down as a sacrifice and took upon him all of our sin and curse. Father, we need you to continue to pour out. We need to know. We need to experience the sacrifice on the cross fresh every day, deeper and deeper, until we know, until our lives are changed, till our thought patterns are changed, till our perspective is shifted. We need light in this darkness, Father. Thank you, Lord. Come on, just speak to him. Invite him in. Ask him to do a fresh work in your life. He's waiting to hear your yes. You know, it's not always about repenting of the things you know, which if you know, repent of those things. But there's also an invitation to say, God, I don't know. I don't see. I need help seeing. I need help knowing the things that I don't even know. I ask for you to do something that I can see what I don't understand or see. I just know this, Lord. I want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. I want heaven to be poured out. In me and my children and my family. And forgive me, Father, for letting my mind be predominant and rule over my life and my existence. I need you to, Lord. And you supersede my mind. You supersede the things I could even fathom and understand. Your thoughts are far greater than my thoughts, your ways above my ways. And I pray that you would be God in my midst and come down and shatter status quo. Open my eyes, open my heart to know and see.
Some of you just pray Ephesians over your life and your heart. Come on, let's respond to God here. Supernatural God doing a fresh work, a new creative work in our midst. public squares at the head of the noisy streets she cries out in the gateways of the city she makes her speech how long will you simple how long will you simple ones love your simple ways how long will mark how long how long will mockers delight in mockery you fools hate knowledge if you had response if you had responded to my rebuke I would have poured out my heart to you. I would have made thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I was, when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster when I will mock you when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like, when like, like you a, when distress and trouble overwhelms you, when they will take call to me, but I will not answer that. I will not answer them. They will look at me, but will not find me, since they hated knowledge and did not fear the Lord. Since they would not accept my advice and turned my re- and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. They, for the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complainancy of the fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me and will give will, and will live in my safety will, and be at ease without fear of harm. What verse was that? What scripture? Um, it is Proverbs 1, 20 through 33. Wow, he gets it. That's so awesome. Come on, let's just respond to that. That's a powerful word. <laughs> 